0: One thing we that uh, Dave did not mention during the opening part, which I want to bring a highlight to, and I won't ask anybody to stand, but we are so grateful to welcome back our youth group and adult volunteers. Uh, give them a round of applause. Uh, they spent the week serving in Mullins, South Carolina, uh, helping doing all sorts of painting projects and VBS projects and stuff. so, Thank you, students. Thank you, adult volunteers who helped to make that happen. I think it was a great week for all involved. I hope uh, they brought back as many kids as we sent. And uh, at the end of the day, isn't that what really matters? (laughs) We're going to give our attention to the reading of God's Word. uh, If you're new today or maybe been here a couple of times, uh, we preach through books of the Bible. And this book that we're preaching through is the Gospel According to John All the Gospels are really significant, but I think the Gospel of John holds a special place in my heart and really in the heart of Christians for centuries because it was written by Jesus' earthly best friend. Uh, And so if we want to know about Jesus, who better to ask than Jesus' best friend? And so we find all sorts of unique insights in John's Gospel that I think are, are fruit of that deep relationship that John had with Jesus. So... With all that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. We're going to read John 8, verses 1 through 11. They, eat, they went each to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I pray, Lord God, that you would enlighten us this morning, not merely our minds so that we might understand, but also our hearts so that we might believe. We ask, Lord God, that you would speak, for we, your servants, listen. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Two weeks ago, during our Pinewoods 360 service day, where we were serving different ministries around the city, I heard a heartbreaking story. A teenage girl gets pregnant. She wasn't married and she was afraid. She hid the pregnancy from her family, planning to go to a neighboring town to give birth, at which point she would put the baby up for adoption. Eventually and predictably, her pregnancy was discovered and her worst fears were realized. Her parents disowned her, And her church excommunicated her. Now, I don't know what happened to that young lady. I don't know what happened to the baby. But I do know that the woman who told me the story never went back to that church and never became a member of any church for almost 40 years Now, the religious people in that church didn't physically pick up stones to stone her to death, but their contempt and condemnation was no less damaging to her soul. Now, when I first heard the story, I I didn't know what to say, and so all I could say was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that happened to you. I wanted to say that would never happen in our church. I wanted to say, Lord, I thank you that our church is not like all those other churches. At Pinewood's Church, we are never legalistic. We are never judgmental. We always strike the perfect balance between the law and the gospel. We always strike the perfect balance between truth and truth. And grace, I thank you, God, that we have it all figured out. That's what I wanted to say, but I didn't say it because the reality is we don't have it all figured out. The reality is nobody has it all figured out. There was one person in the history of the world who ever had it figured out, and that was Jesus, and we crucified him. Here's a quote from Pastor Tim Keller. Part of it is in your bulletin, but this is the longer version of the quote. He writes this, Jesus Christ combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has never seen its like. He is the most absolutely unsurpassed, integrated personality, balanced, wise human being we've ever seen. He is not just a kind of of compromise, halfway between strong and tender, but rather he is just as righteous to the nth degree and gentle to the nth degree. The two traits don't fight in him. They unite in him. I think that that's why this story is one of the most powerful stories In the whole Bible, who has courage like this? Imagine Jesus kneeling down, calmly riding in the dirt, surrounded by a bloodthirsty mob. He's completely at peace. He's completely at ease. He's completely in control of the situation. Who has wisdom like this? Verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Who has compassion like this? Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and... And from now on, sin no more. He is the living embodiment of Psalm 85 verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss. Sometimes our friends and neighbors roll their eyes when Christians say things like, well, we have to to hate the sin and love the sinner, because that's almost impossible to do. I say it's almost impossible because technically it is possible. Jesus did it. When it came to the law, the rules and the commandments and the writings and the regulations, Jesus was absolutely uncompromising. He said, your problem, scribes and Pharisees, is not that you're too religious. Your problem is that you're not religious enough. You have no idea how righteous you have to be in order to earn your place in the kingdom of everlasting life if you did understand the righteous requirements of the law, everything that God requires, you would be in full-on panic mode every moment of every day because you could never do enough. But when it comes to people who experienced guilt And shame, the kind of guilt and shame this woman felt when she was caught in adultery, the kind of guilt and shame that legalistic people are incapable of feeling. He was kind and tender-hearted, willing to forgive any person who would forgive Who would commit any sin, murder, theft, adultery. No sin is capable of separating us from Jesus except the sin of unbelief. Which was, ironically, the signature sin of the scribes and Pharisees who didn't believe that they needed God's grace. Who was the neighbor to the woman caught in adultery? Who was the Savior to the woman caught in adultery? Jesus, the one who showed mercy. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to one of the most amazing captivating, heartwarming stories in the whole Bible. The story of the woman caught in adultery. Now, we'll quickly address whether this actually happened, whether it belongs in the Bible at all. There is some controversy about that, which may or may not surprise you. But we'll spend most of our time unpacking the story itself. What does this story teach us about our own guilt and our own shame? Now, we may not be surrounded by groups of scribes and Pharisees out there, but I think more than one of us has little bands of scribes and Pharisees living between our ears, accusing us of things that we have done wrong, throwing stones at us all day. You're not good enough. How could God possibly love someone like you? How could, Would your wife love you? If she knew who you really are, would your husband really love you if he knew everything that you've ever done? Are they right? Are we guilty? Is everybody guilty of everything? Is anybody guilty of anything? Where do we go when we have nowhere else to go? If you're taking notes this morning, here's our outline. I want to ask four big questions about this story, the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. The first big question is kind of a preliminary question, and then the last three relate to the events of the story itself. The first big question is Does this story belong in the Bible? Now you can probably guess my answer to that question because if it doesn't belong in the Bible, this is going to be a very short sermon. <laughs> I hope you didn't eat a big breakfast cuz you're going to be eating lunch with your dad at about 11:15. <laughs> the second big question is what is the woman's dilemma? What's her problem? The third big question is what is the Pharisees' trap? How do they try to trap Jesus? And the fourth big question finally is, what is the Savior's solution? What does Jesus say and how does what he says strike the perfect balance between grace and truth? So four big questions. Does this belong in the Bible? What is the woman's dilemma? What is the Pharisee's trap? And fourth, what is the Savior's solution? Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look. First big question, does this story belong in the Bible? Before we get to the text itself, I want to say a few things about everyone's favorite subject, textual criticism. I know, riveting stuff, but we have to talk about it because in the ESV, the English Standard Version, the version that I use when I'm preaching and teaching this whole section is double bracketed. And there's a little note that says the earliest manuscripts do not include 7 verse 53 and through 8 verse 11. You'll find similar notes and brackets in other versions of the Bible. The NIV, New International Version, New American Standard Bible, the New Living Translation, in the Message, Eugene Peterson's Translation, No brackets, but the whole section is surrounded by hearts and rainbows and little uh, unicorn emojis. Just kidding, message readers. We love Eugene Peterson, and we, we love you and your message. Should we be preaching about this? Should this story be in the Bible? Well, I did a little bit of research this week, and after reading a number of articles and sermons and commentaries, I concluded that this story, while this story was probably not in the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel, it is almost certainly a true story told by one of the apostles. Over the years, this story has been placed right here in John chapter 8. That's one of the most common uh, placements. Some have placed it at the end of John's gospel and others have placed it at the end of Luke's gospel. But wherever we place it, there is widespread agreement that this story is authentic and therefore it does belong in the Bible. This is somewhat anecdotal, but I will say that I've been reading this story my entire life, 46 years and counting, though in fairness, I wasn't doing a lot of reading the first couple of years. And at no point did I ever think to myself, this doesn't seem like something that Jesus would say. This story here doesn't seem like something that Jesus would do. Again, I know that facts don't always care about our feelings, but Christians do have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. And so we should pay attention to our redeemed, God-given thoughts and instincts and intuit- intuitions because many of those instincts and intuitions come to us from God. Now all that to say in part because of sort of my objective research and in part because of my subjective feelings I have great confidence in the authenticity of this text. As my family frequently reminds me I could be wrong but as I frequently remind them I'm usually not. So here's a quick summary, two heavy hitters, uh, Bruce Metzger and Don Carson. Metzger writes, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. Carson writes, there is little reason for doubting that the events described here occurred. In other words, very few serious scholars would say this doesn't belong in the Bible. Most of the discussions center on where it belongs in the Bible, not if it belongs in the Bible. This story is a st- story that's worthy of our time, and our focus, and our attention because this story, without correcting or contradicting anything else in the Bible, shows us so very clearly the heart of Jesus. Now with all that as background information, we begin with our second big question, which is this. What is this woman's dilemma? Verse 2, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, that's a very serious accusation and a very serious problem for the woman who was caught in adultery because, according to the Old Testament, if two witnesses saw two people committing adultery, then both of those people should be put to death. Adultery was a capital offense in the nation of Israel, and the preferred method of execution was Stoning, which is exactly what it sounds like. People would throw stones at you until you were dead. It was not a pleasant way to go. Now, as a quick aside, while the Old Testament does say that adulterers should be put to death, the standard of two witnesses is a very high standard, legally speaking. Just think about it for a minute. How often would you have two witnesses to the act of adultery? One witness, maybe two, would be a very, very rare thing. Almost never. And because of that, very few people, almost none, got the death penalty for committing adultery in the Old Testament nation of Israel. Now, I point that out as sort of an aside only because I think it's not uncommon for us in the modern world to look at the people of ancient Israel as sort of these very backwards, sort of stone age people who were constantly stoning everyone to death. And so, if you were living in Old Testament Israel, you could walk down the street on any given Tuesday and you might see two, three people being stoning to de- stoned to death for the crime of eating a ham sandwich or shellfish or some other obscure law. It wasn't the case not at all. In other ancient cultures, there were no trials. There were no rules of evidence. There were no uh, judges or witnesses. In Israel, God perfectly balanced justice and mercy, which is exactly what Jesus did in this story. All right. Back to the account, the woman was guilty, she had sinned, she broke God's law. Nobody in the story disputes this. Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not the woman, not even Jesus. They all agree that she did commit adultery. Now before we move on, I think it's worthy to just not gloss over that. Adultery is a very serious sin. It's a very, very big deal, very destructive. Adultery wrecks marriages, it destroys families, it hurts kids. I've seen whole churches completely shipwrecked by pastors and people in authority who've committed adultery. You know the names. You maybe saw the the documentaries on Hulu or Netflix. They're out there. Adultery breaks the one-flesh union between a husband and a wife. It takes something beautiful, the gift of marriage, and it turns it into something that's ugly and shameful and worthy of regret. Adultery is a serious sin, and this woman was seriously guilty. But don't miss this in the story, she was not only a sinner, she was also sinned against before we pick up our stones to judge her for committing adultery, before we heap our, our shame and condemnation on this woman, let's ask ourselves a couple of questions. The first one is, where's the guy? If you will allow me to state the obvious, which is one of my spiritual gifts, <laughs> when it comes to adultery, it takes two to tango. This woman was not, uh, not being accused of grand larceny. Uh, this woman was not being accused of stealing a car or tax fraud. She got caught in the act of committing adultery with a man who was not her husband. What happened to him? Why did these witnesses who were very eager to condemn her, why did they let him go? Was this a setup? Was this selective prosecution? Is this a case of misogyny or sexism? Sort of a type of collectivism where men defend men and women uh, defend women. And uh, we, we put our group identities over and above the truth. Possible. Is that what happened? Maybe the man who was caught in adultery was one of the scribes and the Pharisees. Certainly Possible. Maybe he was rich, maybe he was powerful. We don't know why he walked away, but we do know that he did walk away. That is injustice. That is not fair. That is not an equal application of the law. This woman was sinned against. Second question, what happened to the trial? (laughs) As I noted earlier, there was a whole court system in uh, ancient Israel. There wasn't the Wild West. You couldn't just uh, accuse someone of a crime, say, hey, we've got a couple witnesses here, let's move straight to the death penalty phase and just execute this person immediately. There's nothing here. No courts, no witnesses, no judge. Why didn't this woman have a chance to defend herself in a court of law? This this is mob justice, which is completely antithetical to biblical justice. I bring this up because in many ways, as different as this woman is, in many, many ways, this woman is exactly like us. Like this woman, we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Like this woman, we have all been sinned against by people with nefarious motives time and time again. Like this woman, we have all felt the crushing weight of guilt and shame. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Has anyone ever accused you of something that you didn't do? You know that feeling that wells up within you, that, that sense of fear and, and energy and outrage, and you want to jump in and defend yourself. It, it is hard, it's painful, it's frustrating, but as frustrating as it is, as painful as it is, to me, the most painful accusations aren't the ones that are false. The most painful accusations Are the ones that are true. The question is, where do we go when we're guilty? Where do we go when our conscience accuses us? Where do we go when we have nowhere else to go? By God's providence, this woman was drawn to Jesus. Remember, we talked about that in John chapter 7, if you were here. I think that was the Mother's Day sermon. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now in this case, God drew the woman to Jesus. Not because the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to help her. Not at all. They didn't want to help her. They wanted to hurt her. She was drawn to Jesus because Jesus wanted to help her. She was drawn to Jesus because the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to hurt him which is where we're going next. Third big question, what was the Pharisees' trap? How did they try to trap Jesus? Verse 4, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Here's the trap. The Pharisees knew, and Jesus knew, that according to the letter of the law, this woman deserved to die. She had committed adultery. There were two witnesses to the crime. There's no way out of this. Jesus knew it. It was in the Bible, open and shut. But they also knew that Jesus was loved by the crowds precisely because he was a compassionate person. He was a forgiving person. He was gentle and lowly. They knew that Jesus regularly ate meals with tax collectors, with prostitutes, with other sorts of sinners of all kinds. The moral and spiritual outsiders of Israel were some of Jesus' closest friends. Some of Jesus' closest friends were exactly like the woman who was caught in adultery. So the question is, would Jesus choose justice or would Jesus choose mercy? Would he condemn her as a sinner or would he excuse her as someone who had been sinned against? Can we love God's law and lawbreakers at the same time? Can we Hate the sin, but love the sinner. What do we do when affirming God's word means alienating lost people? Is it principles over people? Or is it people over principles? When we encounter someone like the woman who was caught in adultery, do we shout the law and whisper the gospel? Or do we shout the gospel and whisper the law? Sometimes it seems like there's no right answer. And then, just when we want to give up, pick a side, and hurl stones at our ideological and theological opponents, here comes Jesus with the perfect solution to the woman's dilemma. Fourth big question, last one. What is the Savior's solution? As Tim Keller suggested in the quote I read earlier, Jesus does two things. First, in his exchange with the scribes and the Pharisees, he disturbs the comfortable. Verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. What did Jesus write on the ground? That's the question, right? Well, the short answer is, we don't know. My guess is, based on what he says in verse 7, that it has something to do with their sin. Because he says, Let he who is without sin among you uh, cast the first stone. Maybe he wrote words like arrogance. Maybe he wrote words like greed, deceit, jealousy. As a way of saying, Are you sure that you want to go down this road? Are you, are you sure that you want to start throwing stones at sinners? Because if we go down that road, it's very possible that you're next. It's very easy to be filled with righteous indignation when it comes to other people's sins. How clearly do we see our own sins? How quickly? Would you be uh, willing to pick up a stone to hurl it at someone else in our culture if Jesus wrote pornography, gluttony, selfishness, materialism, gossip? Would any of those words stop you in your tracks? Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, O Jesus, were to write our sins in the sand, O Lord, who could stand? I think the real problem of legalism is not that it takes the law too seriously. The real problem with legalism is is that it doesn't take the law seriously enough. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul wrote, Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision as a condition of your salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who, accept, who accepts circumcision, Or anything else, as a condition of salvation, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Are you starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable? How comfortable are you with the idea that people get what they deserve? How comfortable are you with the idea that other people's sins are a big deal and your own sins are maybe not such a big deal? Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Humanly speaking, these guys were as good as good could be. They were very moral people, Bible-believing people. They were conservative. They loved the Bible. They were elders. They were deacons. They were tithers, which I love. That always warms my heart. I love the tithers. And yet, when Jesus said what he said, they all, without exception, walked away. Because they realized, the old ones first that we are all sinners who desperately need God's grace. And that's where we're going next, as Jesus not only disturbs the comfortable scribes and Pharisees, but he comforts this disturbed woman who has been caught in sin. Verse 9, But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has, has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, we do not get what we deserve Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Because of Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because of Jesus, we not only have the hope of forgiveness, we have the hope of change. We can go and sin no more, not perfectly. No one is perfect in this life but we can truly grow and truly change and truly become someone we could never become apart from the grace of God. This woman in the story didn't get the death penalty because an innocent man took her place. And because he did. Because Jesus endured the death penalty that we deserve On the cross, in our place, there's no condemnation for anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. If you come this morning as a sinner, like the woman caught in adultery, if you come this morning as a sinner, like the scribes and the Pharisees, looking down your nose at other people, if you come as a sinner like me, who is... A combination of both of those things. Go to Jesus and you will be forgiven. But not only that, his love will set you free. Jesus is the one who showed mercy. Let's show mercy to others in his name. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, which is greater than our sins. We thank you that there is no condemnation for all of us who are in you, Lord Christ, united to you by faith. We thank you, Lord God, that you are a God who forgives sins. And I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts, not only that we might be forgiven, but that we might be more forgiving to others who have sinned against us. O Lord God, would you hear our prayer, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.